0: I said there was like a 90-day window. I would say probably 60 to 90 days after that. That was when rates tanked. I started doing a lot of refis. And, you know, I had my first pretty decent month. I was like, God, I had never seen this much money in my life. I was like, oh, my God.
1: Like, you're what? like,
0: what? what? do I do with this? Yeah. And, of course, me, I bought a bunch of dumb stuff and did not do anything responsible with it.
1: But... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You're still young, man. You know, don't do it at 57. but oh,
0: My saving grades is I have time to recover. That's what I was talking yeah.
1: about. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Welcome to ILMB Rookie Mortgage Broker Podcast. Every Friday, I talk to a rookie who's making waves in the industries to find out how they're succeeding in today's ultra-competitive market. Today on the show, Francisco Neri from FBC Home Loans. He's based out of Atlanta, originally from the Dominican. And this young guy came and started working with us at our academy just love his energy, his focus, and initially his business was primarily through some of the leads from his company and he has since transitioned off that a lot and now is doing a ton of business on his own especially through real estate agents and so I thought hey let's have him come on and chat about some of the things that he's learned on his path to getting his business going a couple takeaways from this episode first he talks about how mindset is absolutely critical for him like he had to make a big mindset shift if you guys listen to this show very much you hear that all the time mindset 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 I honestly it's 80% of the success your chances of success are 80% mindset I believe that in our Island B Morgan Pros, We help new agents get their businesses going. And I would say 80% of the time, again, it's mindset that people get hung up on. So that was a big shift for him. And in particular, he said that he had to actually stop being, he said, so selfish. So it was really start thinking about what was best for his clients. And then he also talks about what his routine looks like to protect his mindset, which I think you guys are going to find very useful. Before we jump into this episode, let me give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. So Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection and submission platform. They've got a couple hundred lenders on there. It's linked into something called Lender Spotlight, which is the first tool built for finding, you know, looking at lender guidelines and it's very robust. You guys need to go check that out. We're a big fan of it. At our brokerage, we use it because honestly, it's just simple. It's easy for agents to learn and easy for clients. So check out finmo.ca slash ILMB. And if you're a new agent, maybe you're struggling with mindset and you're like, man, I feel like I'm not performing at the level that I could or what my potential is. Check out get10fuddin.com. So we have a very specific program and You know one of the big things that we train on all the time every week mindset 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 we have to continually beat that drum because you will only be as successful as your mindset lets you and you know francisco is a perfect example of that also at the end of this episode i talked to aaron crocker from dda.ca on ask the expert segment and we talk about three tips for working with private lenders and as you know dda.ca is a virtual law firm that your clients can sign with they don't have to drive into an office They can jump on a screen. It's been amazing. The clients that have started using them absolutely love it. So, check out dda.ca. And thanks again for checking out this episode. Hey, Francisco, welcome to the show. Scott, how are you? Outstanding, man. So, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you're from.
0: Sure. So, thank you for asking. Francisco Neri, I'm with FBC Mortgage, where my office is in Atlanta. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, which is where our headquarters is from. I was born in the Dominican Republic, came to Florida when I was a baby. So I do speak Spanish as well. I am 27 and currently in year three.
1: Right. Awesome. And so what got you into the mortgage business? How did you end up, you know, getting into this?
0: Sure. I totally fell into it. Growing up, I did not live anywhere where there was a mortgage. I came out of a little bit of a disadvantaged situation. So I really just had no exposure to it. was a graduating senior you know I had a finance internship with Northwestern Mutual which if you're not familiar with them they are a really big insurance and investment advisory company conglomerate really here in the states and so I kind of knew I wanted to do something along those lines you know they had the lifestyle they dressed Mm -hmm. up plenty of money I was like okay great but it's hard when you're a baby face. I think I was like 22 at the time. Nobody was listening to me. To tell me
1: I wanted to be the financial advisor too at 21. And I look 15 and you still look, even though you're 27, I can't see you, but you do look like you're, you know, yeah, <laughs> right, you do. Right, get, right.
0: You know. And so if I was like a savant and I was already super ready at that time, maybe I could talk my way around it, but you know, I was graduating. I wasn't even loving the coursework I was doing. And I just, I went to our career fair anyways, I had a buddy of mine, a very good friend of my sister actually who told me, you know, stop by our booth. His dad's actually an executive with us. And I went, they roped me in. I mean, I kind of fell in love right away. I interviewed the next day and then, uh, you know, did a couple more after that. And, you know, that was all she wrote.
1: Right. That's awesome. And so did you start full-time, part-time? What was that transition like?
0: Sure. So when I started, we have an academy at FBC and it's for people that are very new to the business. Generally experienced fellows will just kind of hop around companies like they do. So this is to take someone from how do you spell mortgage to what are the different non QM products we have? And, you know, pretty much everything between, yeah. you know, sales training, everything like that. And so that was 12 weeks, literally eight hours a day, five days a week. And that was for three months. And then once that ended, I got relocated here to Atlanta. I mean, I've been full time.
1: Do they move you here or did you move yourself there?
0: Well, they told me I was coming here and they gave me a package, so.
1: Okay, so they told, okay. <laughs> I, so. I, had to, I had to figure it out. And were you on salary to start or commission only or how did that work? Because like we've got listeners in Canada and the U.S., what that looked like?
0: Sure. I don't know how unique this is, but with us, I was on, I did have a base. At first it was actually hourly, which is cool. And then it switched to a salary and I was getting increased basis points. And then eventually it switched against uh, drawing drawn commissions. And I went to like full commission, which is what I'm at now.
1: How long did it take you to go full commission?
0: I don't think it was a year. Exactly. I think it was maybe nine months. Oh, that's not bad. And
1: so I've just had a curiosity. If you were to stay on the salary slash, Can you stay there indefinitely or at some point?
0: No, the plan was always to wean us off and get us. Yeah, the
1: company's not like, hey, you're just going to sit here and like, this is basically so you can survive in order to get your business to become fully commissioned, but you couldn't stay there for two years, for instance, they'd be like.
0: No, and there are people internally who are like team loan officers who they work under a senior LO, they might be getting something from the company and they're getting splits off the deals. And that's more of a.
1: They're acting more like in a support role, though, not in a direct... Like you're dealing directly with consumers and stuff.
0: Right. right. Well, they probably are. It's more like, you know, in the class or in the course, when you talk about the different models, it might be sort of that point guard model.
1: Yeah, right.
0: The senior guy, the guy whose face is on everything, is handing it off and, you know, someone else's
1: is... dunking, is under the hoop, putting it in. Okay, so was there any point you questioned, you made the right choice? Is there any point you're like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? I'm curious.
0: Yeah, so... I would say there were two. One was when I made that shift to being hundred percent commission. I'm grateful though for it. But at the time I started off working under someone on a really high volume, very hands-on builder account where this was where I cut my teeth. It's a hard account. I'm not going to mention it by name, but any loan officer that hears about it will know. And it was tough. It was tough. They were low credit score, very fast turn times. They were spec homes that were already built. And so we sort of had to figure them out. And it was taking all of my time to do so. I was working pretty much every weekend as well. And I was in a city where I didn't really know that many people. I had no family here. And I was really frustrated. And then when I switched from having that base to not having it, well, I spent all my time basically getting as many reps as possible. I mean, I did get to touch a lot of loans that I didn't have to necessarily originate. But I wasn't getting the full commission on them. I was like the junior loan officer on those. And then when they pulled the plug and I transitioned off of it, well, for about 90 days, that hurt. To where I was like, uh, okay, I'm going to have to make some decisions.
1: Well, the thing is you're learning loans. So in those models, what I noticed is you're definitely getting lots of reps on loans. But what you're not learning is the business development side because you don't have time, right? Like you had no time to develop your business because you're working weekends on these other loans. And so like you jam a lot of experience into a short period of time in terms of the process and underwriting, but it doesn't help you get your own business going. So you had a 90 day period, right? Where you were like, oh my I, would gosh.
0: Say, I would say it was like two to three months where I was like, this kind yeah. of sucks right now. But I was doing business development stuff as well, because I was never prevented from originating my own business. And just the amount of time that that obligation took, it was hard for me to
1: mm-hmm. work
0: the way I do now. But that was what saved me. Was I was in a closed referral like networking group where there was like one of each person, and they, you know, had started referring me business because I was developing those relationships, and I was out at networking events and whatnot. So, I mean, even closing a deal or two a month on top of that brought me right back. And I was like, okay, I'm good now. This is this is fine. Yeah. I know where to go from here.
1: Mm-hmm. okay and was there a point where you're like okay i got this like this is it i'm good like do you remember a point where you went from okay i always like the valley of shadow of death you're like ah oh, this it and then was there a point you're like okay i think this is it i've got it do you remember when that happened
0: yeah i would say probably i said there was like a 90 day window i would say probably 60 to 90 days after that that was when rates tanked i started doing a lot of refis and you know i had my first pretty decent month i was like God, i had never seen this much money in my life i was like, you're like what, what do I do with this? yeah and of course me i bought a bunch of dumb stuff and did not do anything responsible with it
1: but uh, <laughs> i'm sorry you're still young man you know don't do it at 57 but oh for
0: my saving grades i have time to recover that's what i was talking about yeah. but <laughs> that really motivated me i was like okay like i was at the time i was 25 i was like okay i didn't expect to be doing this at this age and i had a good pipeline too so it was like first month i closed like i don't remember what it was in volume and i just had a check and it was like 10 grand i like Nice. Okay. And then I look at my next month, I was like, this is good. Month after that, okay. All right. We might be doing something here. Yeah, Do Yeah. Then I was like, well, you know what? I kind of, you know, banged some away. And I was like, well, if I have another downturn, I'll just write it out and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing now. So mm-hmm. I was pretty fortunate in that I had access to a lot of resources, whether it was, you know, some databases we had, you know, I was starting to get my name out there a little bit more. And, you know, right also picking up. So,
1: right. So what surprised you the most about the mortgage business?
0: Oh, there are a couple of different things, even though the margin for error is not very big. Like we really do have to be accurate. We're going to make mistakes period. And it is equally, if not more important to learn how to like adjust and pivot off of those than trying to totally avoid them. Because like, if you're growing, you're going to make mistakes. One of the things that you mentioned too was a big surprise to me. Learning how to do the job and learning how to grow and run the business are not the same thing at all. I think that like being a loan officer is like three jobs at one. It's like a sales and marketing person, like a deal making or with you guys, maybe underwriting and then like pipeline management, you know, and at scale, they're usually split up, but at the beginning, it's all you. And yeah, recognizing that those are different things and learning how to time block, compartmentalize, make sure that you're always doing them is important. And then lastly, like nobody does things the same way. Right. I've always been kind of a plug and play person where I see something I like and I'm like, okay, I can imitate that model and I'm fine. But I have noticed that like, there's so many different variables as to where we get our business from, what type of clients we have, how we structure our day, how we organize ourselves, like that. There's
1: it, more than one way to be successful. Really.
0: Right. Right. But it takes a lot of trial and error too. I mean, even now I'm still Experimenting stuff because I haven't 100 percent found my model that like I can do with my eyes closed at the highest level yet.
1: But I'm getting right it. when I think of the mortgage business. There's kind of you touched on that. So you got I think of it like marketing. So that's attracting clients, sales, which is converting clients. So you've, you you these leads. You got if you can't convert them, they're all going to go somewhere else. And then funding. You know, and we're selling like a very technical product because there's a lots of nuance to it. And of course, you can screw somebody's life up with the wrong choices, but. So it's technical sales, but if you're selling a computer system, you're doing the marketing, the sales and the installs. And there's really the three kind of pieces as I've been thinking about this more, and you can be really good at installs, but if you can't do sales and marketing, you're never going to be a self-producing originator, right? Like you have to get that piece down. So which part did you enjoy the most? Which part do you like the most?
0: Well, I don't want to say I'm natural in anything. I think even my social normalness has developed, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I would say sales. I like to talk to people, cut it up. I think if you can make somebody laugh, you can get their business.
1: Yeah. That was always my thing. If I had the client laugh at some point, I'm like, okay, I'm good. And right. I you know do anything I could to get that.
0: Yeah. The underwriting part of it was definitely harder for me learning guidelines. And I feel like I'm like a fly sometimes. Like I'll fly into the window a hundred times before.
1: I- You're like, ding, ding, ding. It's like, oh, okay. You can't do this. Right. Right.
0: That's, right, that's- right. Right. But once I get there, I memorized it. Until things change because they always change. I think the biggest challenge though really is balancing the two, staying organized. Because there's say you've got a pipeline, you've got 30 active deals, they're all in different stages, they all have different nuances, and you're trying to get new ones, and you're still trying to, you know, maintain the relationships you already have. I think that's the hard part is start to get busy doing the things that got you busy. It is very easy for me to. Just sit there and work on loans all day. Like
1: yeah. time,
0: many times. And then I'll kick myself in the butt. And I'm like.
1: But then your pipeline starts to dry up, right? You're on the roller coaster, the yeah. loan officer roller coaster. So in terms of the you said the sales your thing, so when did you come into our program? I can't remember when it was. Was it like six months ago, five months ago? I, can't
0: I would say, yeah, yeah, five months ago or so, because right now we are about halfway through my second session.
1: Right, your second quarter. So for you, what was your biggest takeaway that you've got from, I mean, you're a US guy, you got a different model than some of our other clients. So what was your kind of biggest takeaway that helped you in your business?
0: Mindset by far. I mean, I went through a lot of the modules and they are extremely helpful for anybody that's watching this, that there's definitely something that you can take away from it. But for me, it was mindset. I needed to mature a little bit, honestly, both personally and professionally to really, you know, do what I need to do in this. And making sure that I'm cognizant of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it on a daily basis. And, you know, keeping track of my goals has put me in such an improved headspace that now I can actually implement things that I want to try successfully for the right reasons. You know, one thing I've kind of come to terms with is a lot of what pushes people, especially salespeople that want to make a lot of money. Some of the things that we are attached to in terms of like our ethics and our motivations are negative mm-hmm. and you know we have to work through those and really understand what success and happiness looks like in order to operate on our best selves because not even volume specific how many high producers do you know that hate their lives
1: oh totally or they're complete you know burnout wrecks or they're going to crash at some point because they're just flattered all the time
0: right right yeah. and so that's been my biggest takeaway is rather than finding shortcuts and tricks for efficiency and everything like that is you know developing myself to the point where I realize that I'm doing business for the right reasons to help people and that that's going to help me scale. And then I'll just improve things as I keep getting the capacity based on whatever I'm doing.
1: What's your routine look like to keep your mindset Uh, sharp?
0: Shout out to Steve D. Yeah, Steve D,
1: man, he's the king of mindset.
0: Phenomenal. One of the things he recommended in the first cohort was to try to use whatever downtime we have and make it productive. So one of the things I've been doing is listening to a lot of motivational stuff on YouTube, a lot, a lot. Like they'll have these 10 minute, 15 minute compilations with some epic music. You're taking a shower, you're going on a walk, you're doing your thing in the morning, whatever. Just put some good energy into your...
1: Oh, it time. totally just shifts everything for you, Perfect. right?
0: Exactly. And then when you go and you make the calls, oh, and give yourself a little bit of wiggle room to actually wake up too. If you're going to start work at nine, don't wake up at eight, because 15, because you're, you're not there yet. Yeah. And then they made it a lot easier for me to make my calls to just call. And even if it's not business related, show some love to people. And besides that, I would say I've been journaling a little bit, which is something I've never done in my life before, but mm-hmm. you get through your thoughts a lot more clearly when you write them out. Who would have known? So yeah. I would say that that's pretty much it.
1: Yeah. yeah. As long as you have some kind of a plan, like the key is just you've got some kind of a routine that keeps your minds because mindset leaks, right? Like, your focus leaks your mindset leaks and so if you're not always on it and right. you have a bad day bad file and you're like oh my gosh and then you can go into the spiral and be stuck in there for a week or two and that's not good
0: it's huge too though
1: yeah time blocking i haven't
0: yeah. mastered it yet i will admit i'm still working on it but at least now i have identified that i do certain things better at certain parts of the day than others yeah and I don't have it down to like a 15 or even a 30 minute, yet, yeah. but I know that I get way more done if I make my calls early and if I structure my files early. Meetings, afternoon and all day. I can talk to people all day in the afternoon, but if I've been looking at loans all day after a certain point, my brain just doesn't right. lose a yeah. certain attention to detail that is required for that stuff, so I have to do it early.
1: Yeah. Stevie D's good at that. He doesn't do anything till I think noon or something, no client meetings. And then everything gets done in the morning and then afternoons, it's all just, and he loves talking to people. So that those are easy, right? right. So that's a great model. Okay. So I have some rapid fire questions. So what's one thing people can't find out about you from Google?
0: I was going to say the whole kickboxing thing, you know, that I, I like to kickbox just at a competition recently, but if I stay active, That is probably going to change if you Google me. I'm a huge anime fan. I'm a huge nerd. Anime fan. Really? I would not have guessed this. I love it. I love it. I've loved this since I was a kid. I'll literally sneak away in between meetings. Like if I don't have anything to do and I don't have enough time to do something else, I'll like read some of the comics on my phone. Right. Shameless about it though. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) That's cool. And then what's a movie everybody should watch at least once?
0: Jerry Maguire, (laughs) especially mortgage people. Right. Watched it for the first time this weekend. And I was like, wow, It it was really powerful stuff.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like going against the whole, like, Hey, just, he got fired, but you know, (laughs) but it worked out for him.
0: He turned his life around and his business survived because of his integrity integrity and actually caring,
1: caring for the people.
0: The big client that he wanted at the beginning of the movie basically looped around and came back to him and fired the other guy. Yeah. like, why don't we have a relationship like that? I was like, wow.
1: That's how you want to run your mortgage business. Yeah. So you're somebody's mortgage. So we complete you. You know. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> kidding though. <laughs> anyway, uh, what's one tool or tech that you like? What's some tech that really helpful for you?
0: Zoom. Here we are. For me, I love being on Zoom with my clients because I can show them what's behind the curtain. I do not get shopped as much if I go over pricing with my clients when they can see it. Right know exactly why that is, if it's a trust factor or if they realize that, I
1: want you to say that one more time because i listening to this. You've touched on exactly you got to show people. So what happens when you show people versus uh, just tell them?
0: They literally do not shop me as much. If I have the opportunity to have them apply, do the loan consultation where we're going over loan structure and I'm asking the questions and then I get to show them what I'm looking at when I say, okay, here's where pricing is. Here's where your payment's going to be. And, you know, I'll even explain discount points and premium pricing. Because listen, I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, it's like next to impossible to concisely explain over the phone. Yeah. And then they trust me. And then when we have a pre-approval out and they go under contract, I just kind of update them a little bit. Okay, here's where the pricing's at today. You know, I told you they move a little bit. And they're like, okay, cool. Let's do it. Yeah. That's,
1: it. that's awesome. Okay, anything else that you use? Any other tech?
0: I mean, I'm kind of basic besides that, my Outlook email and calendar. We also have a CRM that's pretty good. Aside from other basic CRM functions, it does send automated updates to my clients and my partners when loans move through the process. Like if we submit something to processing, once appraisal comes back, once something's conditionally approved, when we get a clear to closed, final approval, you know, they're getting emails, the realtors are getting emails and text messages, so... It does automate some of the communication for me, which I love.
1: Right. Keeps you in touch. That's good. All right. So what's the uh, best advice you received as a new mortgage broker?
0: Go after the listing agent. Go after the listing agent. The best time to ask for business is at the closing table when everyone just got paid. Go after the other agent.
1: So what do you do there? What kind of strategy do you employ?
0: I go in there. I make them laugh and ask them to get coffee with me.
1: Right. You're doing it live. Do you go to every... Uh, I try. I, every sign. try signing. to as many as I can. Right.
0: Because sometimes the sellers are there and I have gotten a deal off of referral from a seller.
1: Right. Which is them, them to laugh. So if you're not funny, take improv. <laughs> I've heard improv is really good though for communication. Like, I mean, that's like the, one of the highest levels of being able to think on your feet and like, you know,
0: I believe it. I mean, a good comedian, it's rare that you see them trip up even when they go off script.
1: Even when somebody, yeah, but you can imagine if you got good at improv that there's nothing that you couldn't handle. Yeah. You can even do them online. Improv classes. classes. So, okay. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you do different if you're starting over again tomorrow?
0: I'd focus a lot more on the mindset thing for sure. Aside from experience, one of the other things that definitely held me back was like some limiting beliefs for sure. And I would have gotten with you guys earlier. There is a big difference y'all between having a mentor and having an involved coach. Right mentors may not always have the capacity to be that involved and keep you accountable for the things you say you're going to do. Sometimes it's just, you know, someone a lot more experienced than you you can turn to if you have questions, but on a day-to-day coaching really helps. I would also go hard with the social media a lot earlier. i yeah. gotten out of my own way mentally now to where I'm just, I'm just going to do it. And that is one thing that I may have missed out on a little bit you know, not only is it the future, if not the present, but like making content forces competency. Hopefully you have figured out what it is you're going to talk about and you're accurate when you're making it. So, you know, from a development standpoint, I think that that's really good for people who are comfortable with the idea of, you know, going that route.
1: Yeah. One of the things I've thought about a lot when it comes to social media is be a creator, not a consumer. You've got to consume very small doses of it because it's a massive time suck. But if you're a creator, that's a different story, which is what you're saying. You've got to get on there, but that doesn't mean you're on there just like, you know, wasting time watching TikTok videos. So where can people find you online, Francisco?
0: I would say just fbchomewalls.com slash F Nary, which is my company's website. I had actually gotten rid of a lot of the business social media using it. I have over the weekend started revamping it. So not ready to go yet, but So they can
1: soon. find you if they look so. Thanks, brother, man. It's exciting to see what you're doing and even your fights. I'm interested to see how your next fights go. So talk soon.
0: I'm honored to be here and humbled that you uh, had me on the call
1: today. Hey, Aaron. welcome back to Ask the Experts.
2: Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me back.
1: So today we're going to jump into three tips for working with private lenders. We had a pretty interesting discussion before we got started. So let's dive into it.
2: Yeah, so I wanted to talk about private lenders today. I think that you might agree with me, Scott, that we are seeing an increase in private lending. And that's due to a couple of factors, I would say. One just being the mortgage stress test. So we're seeing borrowers that normally may have qualified in the past, but no longer do qualify for bank loans. Second reason I would say also is just an increase in people who maybe don't have stable income, sort of the gig economy, that sort of thing. And then thirdly, just the increase in home prices, right? So People just aren't being able to afford mortgages with traditional lenders.
1: Yeah. So there's definitely been a trend and uptick in alternative space, alternative growth and private lending. So yeah, what are some of the things that you guys are noticing from looking at it from a lawyer's perspective?
2: Yeah. So from our perspective, I just want to highlight that there is extra risk involved in private mortgages and private lending. And that as a mortgage broker, as a legal professional, we just want to pay extra care and attention to these types of transactions. So what I wanted to walk you through today was just a couple of points so that if you do have a private mortgage that goes sideways, you're not caught on the wrong side of things. Right. Yeah. So first of all, so what is the risk associated with private lending? I think I just sort of summarized a few of them. One is just generally there's going to be less restrictive lending criteria. So we're working with borrowers that typically aren't eligible for bank loans. These borrowers may have unstable income. So Non-salary, fluctuating income, contract work, those kinds of things, and then also we may be dealing with borrowers with poor or no credit history. The next thing is that I see a lot is that there's just a sense of urgency with these types of deals. So I've you know had a few that are you know come in on a Friday, and if this deal doesn't close, you know these people are going to lose their house. It's under foreclosure, so it's just a sense of urgency that everybody wants to get the deal done that can leave room for error.
1: Right, right. Yeah, the tends to be they wait till it's too late. And then it's like, Oh, my gosh, I do have to deal with this. And yeah, it creates a bunch of havoc. Okay, that's totally true. So higher risk is one of the factors that is part of these, you know, private lenders, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And then we're just dealing with different levels of experience. So that can be with the borrower themselves or from the lenders, you may typically be used to, you know, like BMO RBC type commitment documents, those are really familiar to you. But when you're working with a private lender, they may not have a commitment. They may not be using sort of the typical documents that you see or the broker conditions that you're used to. So it's just going to be probably unfamiliar to you.
1: Right. Okay. So pay attention. And then what other kind of elements do they need to be aware of when it comes to private lenders?
2: Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was interest rates. (laughs) So I think it goes without saying that private lenders, generally speaking, are going to charge higher interest rates. Than banks, and they may charge extra fees too. So this could include lender fees or broker fees, you know, interest adjustment fees, those kinds of things. That's all fine. Uh, that's part of the, you know, working with private lenders. However, the one thing I want to talk about is criminal interest rates. So there is a criminal interest rate. It is an effective annual interest rate that exceeds 60%. And it's not that's just even
1: worse than a credit card. That's what like <laughs> makes credit cards look cheap. That's crazy. Yeah, it makes
2: It makes credit cards look cheap. So the key here is that it's not just a matter of looking at the interest rate that's on the sheet. So this interest rate is actually the effective interest rate, including all fees, fines, penalties, commissions paid as part of advancing the credit, no matter who pays the fees. So what I think we see really commonly is, you know, it might look like an okay interest rate, but then you add in all the fees on top of that. And that's the interest rate you really have to look at.
1: Right, all the costs. So then, have you seen a situation like it seems crazy to me? But have you actually seen real life examples of this?
2: So I personally haven't seen anything that exceeds the sixty percent rate. It did come close a few weeks ago. I had one that was I had to think about it, but it didn't actually exceed the sixty percent rate. But I did come across a story. Actually, it was sort of interesting. It was in the news a couple of years ago, and it was about a pawn shop and these pawnbroker loans. So what happened was the pawn shop loaned this guy. Some money. I think it was only five hundred dollars or something like that. The pawn shop took this vintage accordion as collateral, and the interest rate that they charged for this loan was twenty-five percent over three months. So what that actually works out to is actually an effective annual interest rate of three hundred percent. Right. So it turns out that the loan wasn't paid, and then the guy who pawned the accordion for the loan, he sued the pawn brokers, the owners of the pawnbroker, for his accordion back. And the court said that, yes, the interest rate of 25% over three months was actually an illegal interest rate as it was 300% annual interest rate. And they ordered the pawn shop to reimburse the customer the value of the vintage accordion less than $500.
1: Right. Crazy. So it still can happen. I guess on your side, when you get the documents in, do you have to do a calculation or how do you determine all of the included fees and costs actually make it into that 60% range?
2: Yeah, so it should be something that we generally look at because, you know, sort of in the pawn shop example, if it is an effective interest rate over the criminal interest rate, then it's not a valid loan, right? So it's not a good situation for the lender or the borrower to be, you know, in basically an Ill- illegal loan.
1: So it would be not enforceable for that, be, not right?
2: Enforceable. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Oh, interesting. All right. What other kind of things that people need to think about when it comes to private loans?
2: Yeah, and then the last thing I want to talk about is the independent legal advice. So generally when we're dealing with your typical bank mortgages, both the borrower and the lender will use the same legal counsel. So it's not something that we even really think about, right? So the borrower just goes and signs with their lawyer, gets their mortgage, and there's no additional legal fees for the borrower or the lender, right? Just sort of the one set of legal fees. However, with private lenders, generally speaking, most lawyers will insist that the lender and the borrower be independently represented. And generally speaking, this is actually in the best interest of both parties. So we want to ensure that no party is signing under duress. And it's particularly important when there's persons granting the mortgage who would maybe not receive a direct benefit from that mortgage.
1: Right. So basically you can't represent the lender and the borrower in a private loan or you shouldn't
2: Generally speaking most lawyers won't yes
1: it's too so risky can- like already saying it's high risk high interest rate like the whole thing it could be a mess if you are not careful so just you know get ILA So do you have any examples of where somebody could have avoided a headache if they had ILA?
2: Yeah so actually this past summer I was reading in the news and there was actually a multimillion dollar fraud case that came out of British Columbia. It involved two men who were fraudulently selling RV camping lots, cabin lots, and dock spaces at a resort in BC. Apparently, these were really nice lots and such that they were able to sell quite a few of these fraudulently. The victims all thought that they were legitimately purchasing and buying these lot and dock spaces. However, the transactions were actually fraudulent and illegal because slips that were submerged on Crown land and they can't legally be sold in BC. So, in BC, marina spaces can only be leased or rented, not sold. So, generally, you know, I was just thinking, had any of these buyers actually gone to a lawyer to have their contract reviewed, they would have easily discovered that fraud.
1: Right. And prevented the whole like just a gong. So, that's crazy. Okay. So, let's wrap this up for anybody listening to this. So, what are the kind of three things that brokers need to think about when it comes to private lenders?
2: Yeah. So again, you guys aren't the legal professional, but you know, you are involved in the deal. And as much as, you know, I do love my private lenders and something goes awry, there's a good chance that you as a broker are going to be pulled into it as well. So just in terms of making sure you can do everything that you can do to watch out for these issues. One, just be aware that they are higher risk transactions. Two, be aware of that criminal interest rate. And three, ensure that your borrower and your lender received independent legal advice.
1: Right. That's really good stuff. Awesome. And so if you guys are listening to this, go check out Dita.ca. I know that Aaron, we were chatting before you guys are growing like crazy. I know that some of them are coaching clients as well as our agents who've been using you guys and the experience is awesome. So if you're listening to this, so d slash ILMB and check them out. They've got a great platform. So just out of curiosity, Aaron, what's the typical like time right now on a refinance that you guys are working
2: on? Yeah. So generally we will request two business days to complete a refinance. So unlike other law firms, we don't push these ahead or behind purchases. We do prioritize our refinances as well.
1: Right. So because you guys have a more efficient process, you're able to like turn things around quicker. So, which I tell people all the time. So yeah, check them out. And thanks again, Aaron. We'll be chatting soon.
2: Awesome. Thanks guys.
1: This is an I love mortgage brokering production.